Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Great friends, can you open up your Bible with me this morning? Is that all right? To the book of John. Fourth book of the New Testament, John chapter 1. We're starting a very exciting new sermon series this morning, and I want to lay a bit of a foundation for us. Now, long ago, I don't know if you've wondered about this, but before the internet and Google, where did people take the pressing questions that they had? Ever thought about that? You know, way back in the time of the dinosaurs, before the internet, people had questions, some of them inquisitive, some of them deep existential ones. And one thing that especially the younger crowd would not understand is there is this building, often in cities, a couple of them, and it's called a library. I know that's like a strange like, pronunciation. It's called a library. And it's, if you go into this building, you'll see strange things like books, actually, like on every shelf and wall, there'll be all these books. And there's a person, she usually is the gatekeeper of the information, and she's called the librarian. And in the past, you know, many moons ago, when you couldn't just go into Google and ask them whatever it is that you wanted to find out, you would actually have to drive to the library or you would have to connect with the librarian because she would be able to maybe help you. So interesting thing, in the 1940s and 50s in New York, they set up a card-based and eventually telephone-based system where you could ask the librarian questions. And some of them were really deep questions of life and philosophy and heart, and some of them were just like interesting things. So um, many years ago, they found in the New York Public Library, they found a box stowed away in one of the recesses of the building, and it had hundreds of these old 1940s, 50s cards from the questions that people had. So let me give you one or two of these. These are not the deepest ones, by the way. I chose the not-so-deep ones. This first one, you can't read it, but it says, what is the nutritional value of human flesh? That was someone's question. Now, I would say this is not when you answer the question. This is when you pick up the phone and you phone the police, right? That's what you do. So Jason, he's a nutritionist in the front here. I'm sure when you get that question, you phone SAPS and say, I've got another question to ask in return. Oh, how about the second one? This guy is very deep. He says, if a poisonous snake bites itself, will it die? That was his deep question. He had to fill in a card and give it to the librarian. Always wondered about that. It's like, you know, a snake biting itself. Or how about this third one? This is my favorite one. It says, what does it mean? This is a deep psychology, you know, my, I'm struggling in life question. What does it mean when you dream you are being chased by an elephant? What does that actually mean? You know, does it mean that my finances are about to tank or is it like some, you know, wound from childhood, the elephant that's always been chasing me? Or So people have been asking some trivial and some deep questions since forever. I think the one question that every single one of us, maybe you're not wondering about elephants or snakes this morning or human flesh, let's hope, uh, speak to me afterwards if that's where you are. Um, I'll cuff you to the building and then leave you here. But maybe that's not where you are, but I can tell you the one question that you are asking regularly, what I'm asking, that every person in Pretoria and the world is asking, is the question, what is the meaning and the purpose of my life? Why am I here? Can I ask you that this morning? What actually drove you out of bed this morning? Except that I'm going to be angry if you're not here. I hope that's not what you think. But why do you have joy and purpose and meaning? What is the thing that actually drives you in life? 
I think people have been asking since there have been people this deep-seated question, what gives me worth? What gives me identity? What gives my life its actual meaning? What makes it worth it that there are so many trials and tribulations and highs and lows in life? And if you think that's something unique to us, it's not. Everyone is chasing some mountaintop trying to find that answer. Maybe for you this morning, for some of the people in our city, that mountaintop is the mountaintop of career success. That's the thing that gives you your purpose and your identity. Maybe for you, it's starting a family. Maybe it's finding a husband or a wife. Maybe it's working towards a good-looking body or living in a nice home or pursuing sexual gratification or gaining influence and popularity. Or maybe it's seeking the thrill of adventure. What's the thing for you this morning that says this thing gives me identity, purpose, and meaning? If we think we are the first people to ask these questions, we're not. Way back when, in the time of the Greek empire, the Greeks were asking this question, and they came up with this idea, and they call it the logos. The logos. And for them, this logos was the thing behind all the things. It's a difficult to translate word, but it can mean things like word or reason or plan or purpose. What is the reason, the purpose behind all of it? What's the word that permeates all of what we do? What's the thing that drives us? And for them, if you wanted to live a good life, a well-ordered life, if you wanted to be a person of integrity and have meaning and purpose, it would be found in pondering on this logos, this very big, you know, intangible, squishy thing up there somewhere. What's the big thing behind all the things? For them, that was a stoically good life. If you could ponder upon the purpose, the logos, and if you could align your life with that, you would live a quality life. Now, to get to John, I find this so interesting. We have four accounts of the life of Jesus. And John, he starts his account of the life of a man who lived 2,000 years ago in this very strange way. Listen to what he says. He says, John 1, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. You can read in your Bible with me. And the Word was God. Now, every time he uses the phrase, the Word, he's using that Greek phrase, logos, So John is clever. He's saying, I'm engaging with this Greco-Roman world. I'm going to borrow your idea. You have this big existential omnipotent thing up there that you call the logos. It's the meaning behind everything. It's the purpose. It's the plan. It's difficult to grasp, but it's there. I'm going to borrow that, and let's start the conversation about the big questions of life there. And he says, this logos it was in the beginning, and this Logos was like God, and this, this Logos was God. And I think all of his first audience people would have been shaking their heads saying, yes, 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 that makes sense, that makes sense. You know, the Logos, it's this big idea. But then look what John does here. This is very strange. He goes further, and he says, he was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. You see, John now, he's very naughty now. He's saying, I'm borrowing your Logos phrase, and I'm personalizing it. This thing that you all know as the big out there, the the big reason for everything, the big purpose, the plan, the thing you ponder upon, I want to tell you, I think it's personal. I think it can be known. I think at this stage, all the eyebrows in the room were at maximum height. What are you saying, Sir John? This doesn't make any sense. The Logos is a he. It's, it's knowable. 
And then, in the most mic drop moment imaginable, he goes even a step further. In verse 14, he says this, this word, this logos, he says, became flesh and it dwelt among us. (laughs) He says, we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And he drops the mic and he walks away and it's pandemonium and it's like a you know, political rally. People are throwing their chairs like, what? How can you say that? The logos, the plan, the reason, the all in all, the thing that permeates everything. He's not only personal, but he has come to make his form amongst us in the one thing we know best. What's that? Ourselves. This word has become flesh, and he's dwelt amongst us mere mortals. That's crazy, John. That's crazy talk. That's eating flesh, nutrition kind of crazy elephant talk. How can you say that? Because what he is saying is a well-ordered life is not just found in a business to be built or sex to be had or fame to accrue or, you know, your name to be made. It's not in a thought to be pondered. It's in a person to encounter. That's what he is saying. He's saying if you want to have true purpose and meaning, if you want to have an intrinsic joy and identity and worth, it's found in this person called Jesus. That omnipotent, untouchable, you know, irreconcilably difficult issue, it's found in the person of Jesus. He is knowable, and he wants to encounter us. And when you truly encounter this person called Jesus, you are changed to the very depth of who you truly are. Guys, as we start this new series, I want to take us back to what C.S. Lewis said about the Bible. I hope you have a Bible in your hand this morning, on your device, or on the good old paper version. But C.S. Lewis says about your Bible this, we come to the Scriptures, the Bible, not to learn a subject, just go through intellectual exercises, but to steep ourselves in a person, to engage with, to encounter, to get to know, to be changed by, to be challenged by, to be reconciled to a person. You see, Jesus, we have recorded all over the New Testament these moments of encounter with all these different people. Sometimes Jesus encountered powerful and prominent and, you know, people of prestige. Sometimes he encountered desperate and hurting and ostracized people, and he would engage with them. And from these accounts of his engagements with people, we see them every single time without loss, walking away absolutely transformed. And when you work through these accounts and you engage the character and the heart and the dream of this Jesus, this walking, talking, living God, Jesus, you come to the question that you should be asking, can I also encounter this Jesus 2,000 years later? Can I also be engaged, changed? Can I be challenged? Can I also walk away different? Because the moment you do that, the moment the Bible is not something you are forced to read for intellectual stimulation or be, you know, to, to get some kind of next step in the religious journey, but it becomes a person that you engage, then what Hebrews 4.12 says becomes true. The Word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul 
and spirit. This book, when you understand that Jesus and his encounters with other people, it doesn't just sit there waiting. It calls to you. It, 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 it grips you. It, it brings you. It doesn't want you to read it. It wants to read you. The moment you understand that, it will start breaking you open like a shell. And God says, I want you. The living, talking, breathing, walking, engaging, encountering God in Jesus Christ. Like one pastor says, the God in a bard, Jesus, he wants to encounter you today. And maybe it's for the very first time. Maybe you have done religious things, you've checked out the Christian faith, you've walked something of a road like that, you are investigating these issues, and I think today and over the next couple of weeks, God wants to encounter you through Jesus. Maybe you have grown so distant and cold and tame with who this Jesus is that God says, I want to afresh come and encounter you. So over the next couple of weeks in this series that we are calling Uncensored Jesus, we want to give you Jesus unfiltered, the concentrate Oros version of Jesus as he engages with people, the Jesus who comforts the afflicted and who afflicts the comfortable, that Jesus, the walking, talking, living God Jesus. I want to show you over the next couple of weeks how he encounters people of all shapes and sizes and backgrounds and how he reaches into their heart and into ours. Are you open to that? Are you ready for that? Fidelis, I see you at the back there. Okay, so let's bring this back to John. In your Bible with me. So John says, this crazy big idea, the Logos, it's found in a person. Now to make this very difficult subject, how do we even think of that to make it very practical? He gives us an example of what that looks like. And so he says, let me show you the Logos, Jesus engaging with a student. And we find, so in that time, you didn't have universities. If you wanted to be a student of someone, you would go to a teacher, a rabbi, you would follow him around. And the most out there, you know, teacher of all was John the Baptist. He was the locust-eating, you know, honey-eating, animal skin-wearing, coming out of the desert, you know, tattoo, leather belt kind of teacher. That's who he was. So he comes, and he has all these followers. And these guys have now heard that John is saying, because he's preparing the way for Jesus, he's saying that this Jesus that I've pointed you to, he is the Lamb of God. Crazy thought. And most of his students are saying, yes, I agree with that. That's amazing. But one of his students is very skeptical. He says, I don't buy it. And his name is Nathaniel. And let's look at the interaction between Jesus and Nathaniel this morning. So read with me verse 1 or verse 43 where we're picking up. He says, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. And he found Philip and he told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. And Jesus, um, and Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathanael asked him, come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus answered. And Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus responded to him, Do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. 
Then he said, truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So just with the time left this morning, with this beautiful praise and worship music in the background, I'm going to ask us just to ask two questions of this encounter that Jesus has with the skeptical student, Nathaniel. Just two questions. Number one, what keeps us from encountering Jesus? What keeps you maybe this morning from having a first-time encounter with Christ or an encounter afresh with Him? And secondly, what does it actually look like when we open ourselves up to Christ and truly encounter Him? So that first question, what are the things that keep us from encountering Jesus? Now, you wouldn't know this maybe, but in the time of Nathaniel, like most young Jewish men, they were all struggling with a big issue. Suddenly, the Jewish people, the chosen people of God, found themselves under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And it's this big existential crisis. Are we, you know, does God still love us? Is He still invested in us? Has He abandoned us? Is He going to come back? The Messiah, you know, that's going to come and overthrow the Roman Empire. Is He coming? Or what's the story? So they're all asking this question. And now, suddenly, his friend, Philip, comes to him with this, verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. You can imagine, for hundreds of years, they've been asking the question about what the Jewish people thought the Messiah, he would be this military leader, this charismatic man who would overthrow the Roman government, you know, install them back into power. And you can almost see Nathanael salivating at this moment, you have found him. After hundreds of years, we found the Messiah. Yes, Philip. And what does Philip say? He says, Jesus, the son of the carpenter Joseph from Nazareth. (laughs) And now what does Nathaniel do? He rolls his eyes. Ugh, come on. Jesus, that the the carpenter's son from Nazareth. Ugh. Please. You see, he rolls his eyes. Why? Because all the people from Jerusalem, they looked down on the people from Nazareth. They lived in that neighborhood. We still have that, right? So if you live in a certain neighborhood, people on the other side of the train track, they live in that neighborhood. And those people, they always look for someone else who they can say, well, at least we don't live in that neighborhood. And so it goes on because we are judgmental like that, right? I remember in, we would go on train tours in high school, and then when you would get to this other city in the school, you would always be placed with people, hosted. And you would always hope in your heart that you would be hosted by people driving a nice car, living in a nice house, in a nice neighborhood. And I'm saying that honestly. And then often you would get there, and it's like this mansion in a nice neighborhood. You're like, yes, we're going to be spoiled. And other times as you drive into the neighborhood, you just roll your eyes like, oh, it's, it's one of those families. Now, I know you would never think something like that, but that's how I thought as a 15-year-old. There are people from certain neighborhoods, and there are people from those places. And Nathaniel is like, are you serious? The Messiah is Jesus from Nazareth. That is ridiculous. He rolls his eyes at him. And you know what that does? There's a lady called uh, Sarah Parker Pope, and she does research on marriages. And she says that in their research, when they see couples interacting, the moment someone rolls their eyes... That's a big red light. Because that means I have outright rejected you. I have disdain for you. 
I'm keeping you now at arm's length. She says, you know, marriages can survive infidelity. They can survive difficulty. They can survive sickness and, and a whole bunch of things. But the moment people start rolling their eyes to one another, there is deep-seated trouble because I have rejected you relationally and now relational connection can't happen. That's what Nathaniel is doing. He's closing himself off of a potential encounter in relationship with Jesus because he's from Nazareth, of course. Can I ask you this morning, what are some of the ways that you are keeping Jesus at a comfortable arm's length? How are you rolling your eyes at the moment? Oh, Jesus, of Nazareth, of course. How are you keeping him just far away enough that he's maybe interesting or frustrating or he's a good religious practice, but he doesn't actually get under your skin? Let me give you a couple of options. Eye-rolling ways that we keep Jesus away. How about religious routine? Maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe that's where people that you know are. I'm just going through the motions. Every week, week in, week out, I sit here, I stand, I sing, I give, I drink coffee, I go back, I come late, I leave early, but I'm just going through the motions. My heart and my mind has long disengaged from what happens here. It's long disengaged from true connection and encounter with Jesus. You're just keeping him at arm's length, just rolling your eyes. How about familiarity? You feel that you've heard the story and emphasizing story of Jesus so many times. It's become just that. It's just a nice story. You feel that you, you know the facts, you know the basics, but the challenge is you are no longer engaging God. You're no longer engaging Jesus, investigating, asking, wrestling. You are living off of secondhand info. You're living off of second-hand revelation. There's such a familiarity with Jesus. He's just become the Jesus of Nazareth, just rolling your eyes. How about this one? Relational isolation. You say that I will encounter Jesus at my time with my Bible in my house, on my chair, with my coffee and my Instagram account with a nice quote on it. I walk this thing out alone. Can I challenge you? The problem with that is that the Christian faith from its very beginning, 2,000 years strong, has been a communal one. It's something you walk out in community with people. There is no such thing as a lone ranger in the Christian faith. And if you say, no, I will encounter Jesus on my terms, on my time, in my way, you are missing out on so much. This Wednesday at our community group, we had a rock star evening. I walked out of here feeling like a million bucks. I was challenged. The people asked difficult questions. We, we wrestled together on some issues. At the end, when we broke into our small groups, I was sitting um, with Philip and Carla and just hearing their honest faith and the, and the way that they say, man, they want to live the kind of life that makes their, their neighbors and their colleagues and their friends ask questions about their own faith. Man, that so challenged me. Are you keeping Jesus at arm's length by saying, I'm walking this thing out on my own? How about this one? Irrelevance. You don't actually think Jesus has anything to say to your genuine issue. Yes, he's got nice quotes, nice thoughts. He's a good, you know, he's good for a Sunday story and a bit of a pick-me-up. But the genuine issue, my marriage falling apart, the genuine issue, where am I going in life? My struggle with who I am, Jesus, he's just a nice story from 2,000 years ago. Well, how about this one? Busyness. You are keeping yourself so busy with so many things, you never get the time to actually encounter Christ afresh. You know, we've got a good friend, Shay and I, 
And years later, he had an incredible, life-changing encounter with Jesus at the end of his studies. But at the beginning of his student life, he would tell us that he would never be able to be quiet. He always had to be drinking with friends, you know, going out, doing things, partying, having girls at his house. He would always have to do those things 24-7 because the moment that he had to sit still and face the silence of his own heart, it was excruciating. How are you keeping yourself spiritually, mentally, relationally so busy that Jesus is just at safe arm's length. You know, in the Screwtape Letters, I love that book. It's, about this, it's a fictional tale about a senior demon giving advice to a younger demon about how to, how to impact your patient. And he tells him, you know, if you want to get your patient, don't let him engage his mind and his heart. That's fatal, If he engages Christ with his mind and his heart with his full self, it's a sure way to failure. You know what you should do? Just get him busy. Just get him busy with the things of life. It's the best way for you to get your patient as far away from God as you can. How about these last two? Emotional disappointment. This is such a real one. You have been dealt such difficult cards over the last season of your life that you've just checked out emotionally from Jesus. Of course he doesn't have the answers. Of course he's not there anymore. Of course he's given up on me. And because of that, you go through the motions, but you're keeping Jesus. You're rolling your eyes from Nazareth, of course, the Jesus that changes anything, nothing. How about this last one? Immovable skepticism. You're like Nathaniel. It's not that you are truly engaging with Jesus. You're looking at the evidences. You're engaging with a person. You're reading. You're asking. You're struggling. You're wrestling. You have made a decision from the get-go. There is no way that he is who he says he is. I just don't believe it. That's silly. That's wives' tales. I love Thomas Nagel. He's the famous American philosopher and professor. He says this. He says, I want atheism to be true. It isn't that I just... Don't believe in God, and naturally I hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Have you made a decision about where you are willing to engage Jesus? Are you at this moment rolling your eyes? Jesus from Nazareth. You know what happens? That kind of eye rolling will disengage you from a true encounter with Christ. So just the last question for us this morning then. If those are some things, like Nathaniel, that will keep you from engaging, from finding, from encountering, from life change, what then does it actually look like? What and how does Jesus encounter us when we are open to him? How does he actually encounter us when we are open to him? Read with me in verse 47. It says, then Jesus saw Nathaniel. So now Nathaniel's like, okay, it's fine. I'll go with you. We'll see this stupid carpet's son. Jesus sees him coming, and he says this about him. Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He's taken aback. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I saw you, Jesus answered. Now, just as a side note, quickly, there are many things that help us understand why we can trust 
the eyewitness accounts given to us about Jesus' life, many different things. One interesting one is if you made up a story, a fictional story about this Jesus, and he's saving the world, and there's a whole money-making scheme, you would not add stupid details that don't add anything to the story that sidetrack people with empty questions like, what was he doing under the tree? You know what the answer is? No one knows. <laughs> Why was it standing under the tree? We don't know. It's just an eyewitness account of some of the things that happened. Was he there contemplating a deep life issue? Was he asking himself what political party to join? Was he contemplating suicide? Was he trying to, you know, was he doing something he's not supposed to do? We don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus, in asking him and telling him, I saw you there, touches upon something so deep, something so profound for Nathaniel that he literally does a 180 and he says, okay, you are the king of Israel. You are the Messiah. Something so profound. Jesus saw him. It's not just that I noticed you. It's not just that I saw you. I saw you. Jesus engaged him. You see, Nathaniel, like maybe some of us this morning, he was an abrasive guy. He was a straight-to-the-point guy. He was a too truthful kind of person. Anyone have a friend like that? He's too honest. In, our, in a couple of weeks, we have our big five weekend where our five school friends get together once a year. One of our friends, he lives here in Centurion. He's like the unofficial, I think, class captain of our group of five because he's overly honest. He'll tell us things that you, of course, don't want to know, but you have to know. Now, Nathaniel was like that. He stepped on people's toes, and yet what do we see? How does Jesus engage him? He doesn't hold that against him. He says, Nathaniel, you know what? I saw you. I saw you. And I'm not holding who you are against you. In fact, I want to meet you exactly where you are. I want to meet you exactly where you are. And in fact, I want to come and change you in the deepest part of who you are. You see, Jesus, it says here in John chapter 1 and verse 14, the word became flesh like we spoke in the beginning. And it says he was full of what? Grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. You know what you need in life. You need a friend like my friend, but you need someone infinitely greater. You need someone who can perfectly summarize you, who can look right through you, who can see every mask coming off and saying, I know you back to front. I perfectly know you, but I will treat you with perfect grace and perfect truth. I will graciously engage you where you are. What's grace? We don't deserve it. And yet that unmerited favor of God is lavished upon us. That's Jesus. He was full of it, the Bible says. But he's truthful. I'm not just going to just faff around you. I'm going to reach into the deepest recess of your heart and change you, transform you. I don't want to put a band-aid around your arm. I want to do heart surgery upon you and make you a new creation. See, Nathaniel was, he was hard-headed. He was difficult. He stepped on people's toes. He was very skeptical. And Jesus says, I will treat you graciously and I will treat you truthfully. I will come and I will lavish my grace upon you, Nathaniel. But I will tell you the hard truth that you need to hear. Maybe you this morning are here and you are a hard drinker. Or maybe you are here this morning and you're saying, you know what, my business consumes me because it's my identity. 
Maybe he's saying, my marriage is falling apart. I'm emotionally lost. Relationally, I feel so distant from other people. I'm desperate this morning. Jesus comes and he says to you, I will meet you so graciously exactly where you are. I see you. I see you under that fig tree. But guess what? I will not leave you where you are. I'm going to engage with you with so much truth. You see, how does Jesus engage us? How does he encounter us? He encounters us in the deepest need of our heart, the deepest need of our heart. Do you see that this happens with Nathaniel? Verse 49, it says, Rabbi, Nathaniel replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus responds to him. He's almost laughing as he says this. He says, do you believe just because I told you I saw you under the fig tree you will see greater things than this, Jesus says. He said, truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. You know what he's doing here? Nathaniel, like many of us encountering Jesus, think if Jesus can just solve my finances, if Jesus can just rescue my business, if he can just you know, bring my marriage back together, if he can just give me inner peace, if he can just give me maybe my conscience uh, relief from its burden, I'm sleeping with other women and it's, 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 it's laying heavy on my heart. If Jesus can just solve the issue that I think I have, Jesus says, I want to solve the true issue of your heart, your issue is not smoking or drinking or sleeping around. It's not any of those things. It's not because you're not going to church or giving or serving. No, your true issue, if you are outside of the name of Christ that we spoke about, is that you have had not a life-giving encounter with Christ yet. You are not a new creation in Jesus. And he says, I come to address not a need, but the need in your heart. He says, you probably think, you, did you just change your mind from a hardened skeptic to now I'm the Messiah just from what this little thing that I, I saw right through you. You probably think, like all the Jews, I'm going to come rolling in with my horse. I'm going to rally the Jews. We're going to take over this empire again. That's probably what you think you need. That's not what you need. What you need, what all the Jewish people need, what this world needs is something so much more profound. That is what I have come to do. And in fact, you will see it. And twice he makes a reference to the story of Jacob. He says, you know, the opposite of Jacob. He says, this Nathaniel that I see, this is a man in which there is no deceit, which is the opposite of what all these people would have known. Who's the character in the Old Testament that's full of deceit? It's Jacob. He's a man who lies and steals his way and cheats his way and swindles his way out of and into everything that he ever earned in his life. And then Jesus says, but you know what you will see? You know what you really need? You know what the deepest desire in the heart of man is? You will see the Son of Man, Jesus, and you will see angels descending and ascending upon him. And he's referring to this dream that Jacob had where he sees the staircase, this almost like a ladder, this connection point between God and man. And these angels representing the presence of God are moving up and down. It's almost like the one thing that has gone awry in mankind's heart, a disconnect between us and our creator, a disconnect between our true purpose, our logos, and the one who is, it's been broken. And Jesus says, I don't come just to be a Roman overthrower. I don't come just to make your name great. I come to restore the relationship that you and all people are longing for, to be restored to your Father. How does Jesus encounter us? He encounters us in the true need that we have. 
you know, I swiped into the gym two days ago. And as I walk past, I hear this girl saying to one of the other girls behind the counter, I'm going to drink so much this weekend. I'm going to be like another person by the end. (laughs) And I was thinking of a conversation we had at our community group. And just making the statement, you know what? If you were a religious, highbrow, kind of, I'm better than thou, elder brother, the prodigal son story, I would walk past and think, man, that girl drinks way too much. I wish I could help her to not drink so much. You know what her true need is? It's not to drink less. It's to have an encounter with the Jesus who comes to replace the deep need she's trying to fill without help. He says, I will come and I will establish once again a connection between you and your father. And he will address the deepest need in your life. You see, Jacob was a man who earned it. He, he made it work. He cheated. He swindled. It was all his own work. And God meets him, and he literally wrestles him in the Old Testament. What a crazy story. He says, you are running away from me trying to make it work. I will wrestle you and show you that it's I that makes it work. And so he comes to the place where he acknowledges it's not what I have done. You see, friends, to finish off this morning, that is the crux of our Christian faith. Every religion and philosophy out there will say, do you want peace of mind? Do you want nirvana? Do you want a new heart? Do you want peace? Do you want joy? Do you want to feel connected with the oneness of the universe? Then, my friend, here's what you need to do. Empty your heart. Fill your mind. You know, restore your joy. Pick up your bootstraps. Make this thing work. Pray, chant, go, give, serve. Do all these things. And Jesus comes and he says, yes, like Jacob, you will run, you will wrestle, you will cheat, you will try, you will exhaust yourself until you come to the place where you see, I am the one who does not call you to do for God. I am the one who has come to do for you what you would never be able to do yourself. The logos of God, the true purpose, the meaning of it all is not a thing to ponder. It's not a philosophy to know. It's not a program to attend. It's not a business to build. It's not sexuality to discover. It's a person to encounter, and his name is Jesus. I'm going to ask Mo to join me in the front. I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, this morning, we want to pray and ask God, that every heart that is here, that's bare before you, God, you know where every single person is. And I know that your heart's desire is to not address peripheral issues, but to come and meet us, to encounter us afresh. Jesus, you, the walking, talking, living God. And I pray this morning, God, may you bring us close.